Hi, welcome back to Shop Talk with the Sheriff. I'm Sheriff Gregory Tony here in Broward County, Florida. Thank you for joining us once again on our podcast. Today, we're going to have another special guest. For those of you who are familiar with how our podcast works, sometimes we have uh, outside partners that come in who are doing community activities and involvement to enhance the quality of life of Broward County. And then we also talk to our folks internally, some of our different departments, employees, and specialized units. Today, I have the honor of bringing in one of our veteran detectives, Detective Zach Scott. He is currently assigned to our cold case homicide investigations unit. But before I talk about that, have to give you the background. Zach has been with us for over 20 years now, starting his career back in 2000. He's pretty much run the gauntlet from the investigative side, worked his way into homicide uh, as an investigator for six years. He was also a member of the deputy involved shooting investigations team, firearms instructor, defensive tactics instructor has ran, again, the gauntlet when it comes to the investigative aspects here in Broward Sheriff's Office. So today we're excited. We're excited because a little over two and a half years ago, we talked about how can we enhance our ability to investigate cold cases and launched a cold case homicide investigation unit. Now, we've always had cold case files and cases in which these men had to work, but this was a true commitment from our administration to make sure that they had the tools capabilities and then looking at expanding them so Zach thank you for coming on the show today and really let's just jump at it talk to the folks about cold cases what does that mean you know we get CSI we get law and order you hear about these cases but I think people don't realize what the true nature is of a cold case and the complexities behind it sure well first thanks for having me on the show sheriff Um, for us cold case and my personal preference I prefer to just call it the unsolved and, and you know, even more preference, I'd like to say temporarily unsolved unit. Uh, we investigate uh, specifically homicides and uh, sex crimes uh, that are unsolved. And sometimes it's based on duration of time when there's not an investigative lead. Sometimes it's just that the investigative leads and evidence has been uh, explored to the fullest extent. And it's just there's no forward movement happening on a case. Uh, at that point, we just look at it from a different perspective. We come at it from an outside point of view. Uh, we look at the case fresh, and we try to come up with different approaches on how we can develop suspects or look at the evidence for new ways to process it. And then we partner with our uh, very talented folks out at the crime lab or with the crime scene unit and try to stay current with what mm-hmm. the, new, the new techniques may be to basically breathe life into those investigations. You know, and with those cases, uh, you hear code cases, and it doesn't matter where you're at, what part of the country, there's always a level of longevity in terms of how long the cases have sat. You know, sometimes it's months, sometimes it's years. Uh, Is that consistent here with what we've been working on at BSO? Um, You know, are we dealing with one-year cases that are old, two, five, 15? I would say we have, I can tell you that we have cold cases, uh, homicides that go back to the 60s, uh, 1960s. Uh, But we also will look at any unsolved homicides that we've had, even if it's been a year or even less, if those leads have been run out. Uh, But we run that whole gauntlet of -hmm. of time periods um, because, you know, the sheriff's office has been around for a long time. Other departments have joined the sheriff's office and bring with them their unsolved homicides. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's imperative on us to go back and review those cases as well. So none of them are forgotten. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things you're talking about in that transitional period, um, I just want to provide clarity to the folks who are listening. When you're talking about the sheriff's office been around for a long time, but sometimes agencies bring new cases in. You're talking about when we end up taking over contractual services for a new city, let's say, 
perhaps, you know, Cooper City just joins. And we know they've been with us for a while, but if they join and they had an independent police department, we inherit those cases and homicides there as well. Yes, sir. Excellent. So, you know, let's talk really quickly about <clears throat> your experiences and what you have been seeing now um, as we've constructed this new cold case homicide unit. You know, what are some of the things that you're looking at? Uh, what case type of cases are you investigating into, you know, type of homicide, just to explore and expand what case volume you're dealing with or the type of cases? Okay, well, we're obviously we're looking at a lot of homicides, but uh, there is also a component of uh, unsolved sex crimes that we're also reviewing, primarily because a lot of the uh, tie-ins that we look at, especially when it comes to evidence processing, is going to be the same. Mm -hmm. Techniques have changed. Technology's gotten better. Uh, the same things that we would use today to identify a sex crime suspect would be the same techniques we may use on a homicide suspect. So uh, a lot of that is, is that interconnection. On the homicide side of it, we are uh, looking at cases uh, both old and new. You know, we're definitely going back and reviewing cases that maybe have physical evidence that we've collected that could benefit from the better technology, the better science now that we have. Uh, but we're also looking at cases that where the, it's a human component and we're going back re-interviewing witnesses or, or looking at people who've been arrested for similar crimes in neighboring jurisdictions and trying to see if there's any consistent characteristics between the crimes uh, that it might be the same suspect that we're all looking at we just didn't know. You know, you earlier t you touched on the fact that, hey, you know, sure, if there's cases we're looking at that's going back as far as the 1960s, what has been the impact of technology when it comes to how you're investigating and the successes that you're having? You know, 1960, the, the aspect of DNA was uh, almost, you know, up to the levels of uh, Star Wars. We're just imagining these things. Um, what we're doing with camera systems and Internet, how has that changed your ability to, to successfully get to an end result for some of these homicides? I think it's huge, and I think there's a lot of potential for further development. Uh, much like in the 60s, the concept of DNA would be completely alien. Uh, I look at our cases now sometimes and wonder, what, what are they going to be doing in the future that's completely alien to me now? Mm -hmm. uh, and with that in mind, we try to make sure that even newer homicides or even the ones that are more recent, that we are preserving the evidence the best that we know how uh, in case there is this great development in technology, because they're always coming up with new ways and new things to do. And that's always, uh, a, I would say, kind of an obstacle for investigators is, is trying to know what those new techniques are and making sure that we are applying them in investigations. Um, when we look back at the older cases from the 60s all the way up through, really, the millennium, the 2000s, that's where that, that sweet spot is where, you know, mm -hmm. DNA wasn't really here for us to work, you know, or at least not consistently. Um, and even if it was, the methods have changed even within the last five years where we have systems that are much more sensitive at detecting and identifying profiles that allow us a lot more opportunity to identify suspects with our evidence. Now, one of the things that was talked about, at least I heard at the administrative level when the idea came up, uh, to make a dedicated cold case unit and the justification behind it. Uh, it was clear to me, um, but what does that team, what does a unit look like now? Uh, manpower, full-time, standalone, et cetera, just to, for those who are not in-house and, and curious about what it looks like. Sure. Well, currently we have three full-time detectives in the cold case unit. Um, we are tasked with 
obviously the unsolved investigations. We take on a couple other responsibilities as well. Uh, we actually have a um, fair amount of unidentified homicide victim cases where human remains have been found that still haven't been identified. Uh, so we take on the responsibility of trying to identify those victims as well. Uh, truthfully, to work their homicides until you know who they are, it's very difficult. Uh, the other thing we do is we have several cases involving homicide fugitives where we've identified a suspect, arrest warrants have been obtained, and now it's a question of finding that person and bringing them to court. Uh, so we'll liaison with our fugitive units um, and, and other marshals task force, other groups, and also work with our media partners to get the word out on these suspects and attempt to get them apprehended. I think one of the cases that is most certainly worthwhile mentioning uh, that the cold case unit was able to help find conclusion for not only this community, but most certainly for the victims and their family members, uh, was identifying the serial killer that we had in Broward County and in the South Florida region, really going back as far as 2000. And I'd like for you to take a moment to explain the case development, the investigative aspects, and how all it led to being able to confirm this murder suspect who really has, you know, fl fled justice, literally, uh, and avoided it uh, in terms of what we probably would have liked to conclude. Can you talk a little bit about that, Zach? Sure. Uh, it, these cases started back in 2000. Um, the first victim that was discovered was Kim uh, Livesey. Uh, she was found uh, murdered, and her body was then put in a suitcase that was left on the side of the road in Cooper City. Uh, back in uh, June of 2000. Now, at the time, Cooper City did have its own police department. They were the lead agency in that investigation. Mm -hmm. um, they began to follow leads, run down the uh, evidence, and identify a suspect. The following August, however, in unincorporated Daniel Beach, another victim was located, again, uh, deceased inside of a, a bag that was placed on the side of the road, and that was Sia Demas. Uh, based on the physical processing that the BSO crime lab did and the crime scene unit, they were able to extract a DNA profile from both of those bags. Uh, the, the profile was the same, so we knew we were dealing with the same individual, at least somewhat involved in those murders. Uh, they were also able to identify a fingerprint from plastic bags that were wrapped around Sia Demas in Dania. Uh, so we had two very strong identifi identifying pieces of evidence uh, but when we submitted those items into the federal database in an attempt to identify the suspect, there was no match. So we knew we still had someone who was out uh, or who was not in the system. Um, literally hundreds of thousands of leads were run down, both by Cooper City Police Department as well as the Sheriff's Office. Uh, there were lots of, lots of Crime Stoppers tips that came in, lots of uh, rumors that came up. Uh, a lot of proactive work was done. There was some characteristics that were similar between the two victims. Both had been involved in prostitution in the city of Miami in the same area. And the fact that both were then disposed of in Broward County, we were trying to work those links as well. Um, in 2001, uh, the city of Miami had a case where their victim, Jessica Good, was found deceased floating in Biscayne Bay. Uh, she was uh, stabbed to death and they were able to obtain a DNA profile from her case as well. Um, they had a name of a person she was last seen with who was a possible suspect named Roberto Fernandez, and they were able to track to an apartment where he was living, but he had already fled the country the next day and gone to his native country of, of Brazil. 
the evidence, as I talked about before, technology changed, science changed. The city of Miami was able to get a federal grant that allowed them to reprocess some of the evidence they had collected. And in the course of doing so, they developed a full profile that when they submit it to the database, it alerted to our other two cases. And suddenly we knew that the same person responsible for uh, Jessica Good was also responsible for the murders of uh, Kim Lidzi and Sia Demas, all three cases linked. Uh, and we also knew, unfortunately, that at that point we believed Roberto Fernandez had fled to Brazil. And again, at that point, it was just the name. We didn't know right. if it was really him without being able to collect a live sample. So negotiations were opened with the government of Brazil as far as if they would obtain a DNA sample. And unfortunately, because we did not have an extradition treaty, uh, they basically would not be able to obtain a sample unless he was arrested for other crimes in Brazil. Uh, and even if... Now, he had some interesting things occurring in Brazil, uh, if I remember correctly. Yes, sir. Uh, he didn't just commit his crimes here and decided he was going to, you know, become a, a born again and right. live well in Brazil. Isn't that right? Tell, talk a little bit about what you discovered while he was in Brazil. A absolutely. Yeah. When we reached out and spoke to the uh, Brazilian National Police about trying to obtain that sample or anything, uh, fingerprints, for example... Uh, they were able to provide those because they explained that he had already been arrested back in 1996 prior to coming to the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, for the murder of his wife. And that uh, apparently stemmed from an argument they had where a prostitute had come to his home to blackmail him uh, about their relationship. The wife found out there was an argument, and he claims he had to shoot and kill her out of self-defense. Uh, he was arrested and tried and was acquitted based on that self-defense claim. Uh, however, his late wife's family did not uh, receive that well, um, mm -hmm. it was our understanding, and uh, they had apparently, uh, we were told, hired people to kill him, which is why he ended up fleeing to the States uh, in, in the years following that, that acquittal. Mm -hmm. uh, we were a little hazy with travel logs as far as when he actually got to the States the first time, uh, but we do believe it was sometime between 97 and 99. So, yes, he definitely had a history, uh, and his name had come up in other investigations. Um, actually, prior to our murders, the Brazilian National Police said that they had uh, two cases involving the death of prostitutes in which they felt some of the characteristics were very similar to our murders. And we do believe he may have traveled back and forth between the Brazil and states uh, a couple times uh, prior to us identifying him wow. in the Jessica Good murder. Um, but even with that in place, they, there was still no way to extradite him, even if mm -hmm. they were to find him. Um, our investigators went to Brazil in 2011 and uh, attempted to obtain a sample themselves. You know, we can follow the guy around, wait till he discards something. Uh, and while they were working with the Brazilian National Police to locate him, they received reports that he had died in a plane crash in Paraguay. Uh, apparently, uh, after returning to Brazil, after the Jessica Good murder, the uh, late wife's family continued their efforts to have him killed, so he, f he moved to Paraguay. But he was a licensed pilot and would fly back and forth pretty frequently. Uh, on one of these flights, he crashed in 2005, it was reported, and, uh, and was pronounced deceased in that country. Oh. However, when they tried to find any documentation showing who identified the body, who took receipt of the body in Brazil any of those things, there were no records. No one ever said they saw him. Uh, investigators went a step further, went to the actual cemetery where he was buried, and the caretaker there said that he believed the grave was empty, that it was just a symbolic grave to someone that was never found. Mm -hmm. um, 
with it makes things the, really complicated uh, from the investigative standpoint because you're trying to prove whether somebody not only exists, but did they die. Right. And then you want their DNA. Right. And, and he had a lot to gain by faking his death, both for his own safety. Absolutely. But also to avoid our charges and, and mm-hmm. any possible charges that Brazil could have on him. So it wasn't far-fetched that he would fake his death, especially with the circumstances being you're talking about two different countries, mm-hmm. records going back and forth. It was very, very circumstantial, but it was unfortunately a very hard wall to get over at that point. Um, with no extradition agreement, it was really hard to press the issue. But the Brazilian authorities assured us that they would continue to try to uh, locate him. There were a few things that came up on the radar. Some property in his name well after his death came up. There were some legal um, motions that were filed in his name. Uh, Later on, we determined this was a case of identity theft. Unfortunately, other people had used his information. Um, But in 2018, we're fortunate that there was a homicide in Palm Beach County where the suspect was a citizen of Cuba, who we also do not have an extradition treaty with. However, the Cuban government agreed to take him into custody, and the trial was held in the country of Cuba. First time it's ever happened in history. So establish some new precedents for you to work off of. And more importantly, it, as investigators, it told us, you know, why can't we try that? Right. You know, what, you got to try. Uh, if anything, that's kind of our, our thing. You know, no matter how far-fetched it may be or, or daunting the task, you have to say you tried. That's right. Um, so we took that precedent. Uh, we met with our state attorney's office, the Department of State, Department of Justice, FBI, and approached the uh, Central Authority of Brazil, and they were receptive. Uh, but the first step was, okay, we got to make sure this guy's alive, and if he's not, we got to prove it. Mm-hmm. So uh, a Brazilian judge issued an order for exhumation, uh, and then in 2020, they were able to exhume the grave, and they did actually find remains inside. Uh, at that point, it was an issue of having those remains tested for DNA profiling. Uh, we would like to have been able to do it ourselves, but with COVID, sending biological sure. things was not going to happen. Uh, so the Brazilian National Lab uh, did the initial testing and then sent us their results. Now, they did not have our crime scene sample, so the only thing they were able to determine is this is Roberto Fernandez based on his uh, uh, DNA similarities to his daughter. Mm-hmm. They had a standard from her, but that didn't get our cases, you know, in the in the clear yet because we didn't match it to the scenes. So once the sample uh, summary was sent to us, our lab was able to determine that it was the same profile, and we knew that Roberto Fernandez was indeed deceased, but he was also the person whose profile was obtained from all three crime scenes. Wow. So, you know, for those of you who just jumped on in, in between this, you know, today we have our Detective Zach Scott, who is one of our members and investigators in our cold case unit. And he, he basically went through and described uh, a complex set of circumstances in their investigation uh, that led to the confirmation of a serial killer we had here in South Florida. And, you know, Zach, I think, you know, you outlined the DNA aspect, the fingerprints, the thousands of hundreds of thousands of leads um, the international implications to work with another government that has no obligation to meet U.S. expectations. But that speaks to the level of thoroughness of all the investigators, uh, both here and our partners in, in uh, Miami, uh, down in the city of Miami, their police department and stuff, because they contribute to this investigation. Uh, and it also speaks to the importance of what we're doing with this cold case unit and why we, n- we need to keep you all uh, fed and hungry <laughs> and making sure you're, you're knocking these cases down. Uh, anything on the, on the horizon that you think is going to probably rise to this level of um, success that you're seeing? Any cases that you can kind of explore really quickly? 
I, yes, we have uh, we have several cases that we're actively investigating that we're making some progress on. Some of it is tied in with um, evidence processing, which is sometimes not a quick process. Uh, but th- at the same token, we want to make sure that we are as thorough as we can be so it can never be challenged. Uh, so some cases that we feel will come to fruition are, are kind of in that process now. Uh, we're also pursuing some active cases that have connections to other jurisdictions. Uh, and trying to work with those jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. We're fortunate that at BSO we have a full-time cold case unit. Most departments do not. Um, so when we have cases, because killers don't know jurisdictional boundaries That's at right. all. Uh, so, you know, across the street is Fort Lauderdale. We may all be looking for the same bad guy, but until we sit down at the same table, we'll never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have some cases where that's the case, where we're working with other agencies to try to put together the best case possible for everyone's cases. Uh, but we're, we're definitely making a lot of progress. Uh, it, it's, it's a big task as far as the number of cases that we have, but I don't think you're going to find anybody more dedicated than the guys you have working at right now. I mean, it's, I think when we did the math, we're, we're looking at close to 80 years of law enforcement experience amongst the three of us. Oh. So they, they bring a lot to the table. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, look, Zach, you guys are really doing a phenomenal job, not just for the agency, but for the community. Um, you have my full support, 1,000%. Uh, I'm making sure you guys have what you need any way I can uh, to keep this going. For everyone else who joined us, to say, look, once again, thank you for joining me on Shop Talk with the Sheriff. Remember, you can follow me on Instagram at BSO Sheriff Tony. It's not a stunt double, it's me. Also, subscribe to the podcast so you get early alerts for every new episode. In the meantime, stay safe, be humble, and try to love somebody a little bit more than you love yourself.